This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We began the week responding to the horrifying and yet not surprising details of the final report from the Long-Term Care COVID-19 Commission. There is troubling testimony from family members, in some cases detailing neglect of their loved ones, left to lie in soiled diapers without even a blanket to cover them, while begging for water. The report is especially critical of Chief Medical Officer of Health Dr. David Williams for failing to act more quickly to prevent asymptomatic spread of COVID-19, which he initially denied as even being a possibility. As for the long-term care minister, Marilee Fullerton, the report acknowledges she foresaw the deadly consequences, but fell in line and followed orders when she was overruled. At her Monday news conference, Fullerton refused to accept any blame or apologize for the more than 3,700 COVID-related deaths in Ontario's nursing homes and continued to blame previous governments for leaving her government a mess and calling it our collective responsibility to fix. The Zoomers advocacy group CARP has been sounding the alarm about the dire state of Ontario's nursing homes long before the pandemic. We've also been reporting on it in Zoomer Radio News and on Fight Back. So how can we share blame with a government that cut back on inspections and failed to put in the necessary staff and infection control measures between the first and second waves of COVID-19? Libby Snymer was joined, as she is every Monday, by the Zoomer Squad, Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. It's obvious that her, her strategy and her marching orders is to lean heavily on the first half of the report because they, it is true, they can say that many years of neglect, many governments, uh, regimes in the past didn't do this, didn't do that. It's even worse than we thought. There are specifics in here that are even more horrifying than we knew about as to the past. So she's completely within her rights to, to mention that and that that's her strategy. Part two, okay, but what did you do when this happened? Uh, she doesn't want to go near. And that's also understandable because the record is very dreadful. The report, I think back, Libby, to all the months we've been talking about this and what was really going on at that time is even worse than we imagined from this report. Bill. Obviously, yeah. And, and only uh, answering four questions, speaking for 22 minutes, and then she, then she, walked, uh, she walked off. It was a very unimpressive uh, presentation and certainly did not answer the questions that we thought, given the two days they had since the report, uh, almost three days since the report was was released to them, you would have thought she would have had anything more specific than to be able to say that later this week there'll be some more announcements about improving the uh, the living conditions, the care of our loved ones in in long term uh, 
care. I don't think it did anything today to uh, uh, to raise confidence in anybody who watched. This woman thinks that there's no response. Well, she keeps saying I take responsibility for their well-being, but she doesn't think any of this is her government's fault. Well, I think it. I think she doesn't think it's her government's fault because she's cornered and she has to. She does have a lot of ammunition in saying they should have done this, they should have done that before. But there's something that's really important here. When they set up the Ministry of Long-Term Care, we are learning through this report. It was, I think, just optics. I think it was a sidebar ministry all along. They never had any call. They weren't even at the table. We have these famous tables, the science table, the policy table. They weren't even at the table till a, uh, several weeks into COVID. And throughout uh, this report, you see examples of an email they sent here asking the Minister of Health, please include us in your communication strategy. Why didn't you check with us about this? They, nobody paid any attention to them. At the beginning, the government and the Ministry of Health was obsessed with the hospitals only. That's where the problem was going to be. Nobody paid any attention. And I think her biggest failing was she didn't either have the clout or the, whether it's the personality or the clout or the manpower to make her uh, portfolio important enough at the beginning, so they all bypassed her. And she could, other than standing up once and refusing to do a video saying that the risk was low because she thought it was high, with to her credit, she didn't do that video that they asked her to do. The rest of the time, she was a voice that was unheard. And I think that's the biggest failing at the very, very beginning. She didn't make her constituency important enough uh, in the powers that be in the healthcare system. And then Williams, who really He's the one individual, I think, that gets the most scathing treatment in the report. He never believed in community spread and an asymptomatic infection risk, which she did believe, and he didn't, until practically the summer, the first summer. He kept on saying, no, no, no. And Yaffe, his assistant, who was also criticized in the report, no, 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 it's not going to happen that way, and yet it did. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Now to concerns around wait times for a second COVID-19 vaccine dose. Many people have expressed worry about the four-month interval between vaccine doses here in Canada, which has been mandated because of a lack of supply. In fact, it is longer than any other interval in the world. And with shortages in some brands but not others, it has scientists and other experts weighing in on the safety and efficacy of using the vaccines interchangeably and giving a second dose with a different vaccine than the patient received for the first dose. Joining Libby on Monday to discuss, Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table, and Dr. Brian Lichty, Associate Professor of Pathology and Molecular Medicine at McMaster University. With the existing vaccines, they are currently studying this, uh, and it's a little early to know. But what we do know is that for years now, um, immunologists have been studying what are called, what's called a heterologous prime boost, and that's where you use two versions of a vaccine, one after the other, 
And the science says that this is actually a very good way to generate um, an effective immune response when you're vaccinating. And there, um, prior to the pandemic, there were a number of vaccine programs that have probably been interrupted now that were showing very good evidence that this is an approach that um, that works great um, in in various settings against various um, infectious agents. So uh, the science says that this is probably a good way to go, in fact. So when are you expecting to see uh, more results on this? Um, well, they're going as quickly as they can in, in England where they've started, or Britain where they've started um, these combination trials. So in, it'll take a few months to get the data, of course, because there's the time following the second vaccination to see the immune responses, but also to to see what degree of protection there is. And the, the, the less coronavirus is circulating in the population, the harder it is to tell if you've protected people. So um, because they've done such a good job with vaccination, the numbers of infections are down in Britain. And that may make it a little harder to be sure that this will protect. But um, I'm sure other jurisdictions are going to roll out um, the heterologous approach and, and find out how effective it is. I'd like to bring in now Dr. Peter Uni. He is the scientific director of the province's COVID-19 science advisory table. The point really is that antibodies, the antibody levels that we can measure and the, uh, the, the cellular um, immune response that we can measure in the lab will give us a really good hunch about what's going on. So this is really probably most mostly about that part. These trials are not that large. That's not trials, you know, uh, for us to, you know, understand how the clinical protection is in terms of avoiding hospitalizations or ICU admissions or cases. They, these trials are mainly there to, uh, for us to understand how high the antibody levels are and how good the cellular response is. And I think we will be able to tell based on these trials, actually what's going on, you know, I hope within, uh, you know, the next four to six weeks or so. So I'm still quite optimistic, actually. I'm hearing from a lot of people who are very concerned about this four-month interval that we are stuck with, at at least at the moment. What are your views on that? Look, we need right now to do the right thing for the entire population of Ontario. No, and the right thing is to have as many people as possible protected by approximately 50 to 70 percent against severe disease, but also have them protected. We see that now increasingly that this is the case against transmitting the virus by 50 to 70 percent. What is important is, you know, in all of this, we cannot let go of the public health measures anyway right now. That's important. And then the other part will be that we look very carefully into who should get the second dose first. But what we need to make sure is that we really get it right, especially with the very high risk groups. That's what we did, for instance, you know, with the long term care homes. Most of residents in long term care homes have been vaccinated twice, plus the groups that I was referring to and then the 80 pluses. 
Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table, and Dr. Brian Lichty, Associate Professor of Pathology and Molecular Medicine at Hamilton's McMaster University. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, will new federal oversight put a stop to the proposed West GTA Highway? which would plow through a portion of the Ontario Greenbelt? Environmental activists certainly hope so. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Our Fight Back strategy panelists took a break from issues around the pandemic to talk about some other important topics. These include the Trudeau Liberals' decision to take over environmental oversight of the proposed controversial GTA West Highway, known as the 413, which is now delaying the Ford PC's efforts to fast-track the project that has been strongly opposed by environmental advocates, residents, and municipal leaders. There is also the widening sexual misconduct scandal in the Canadian military. The federal conservatives have been calling for Prime Minister Trudeau to fire his chief of staff, Katie Telford, who apparently knew for two years about scandalous behavior related to then Chief of Defense Staff Jonathan Vance. Joining Libby on Tuesday to discuss Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road. It's hard to focus on anything that's not COVID-related or, or, or related to the pandemic, as we talked about. And long-term care facilities are far, far more important than anything else. But, you know, you've got this issue uh, with the federal government, and I think the, for the, the, the opposition, the Conservatives specifically, are, are really you know, doing their job to, to get us and keep us in the press. Uh, and I think it's for a reason. And I think it's to, to try to drive the narrative that this federal government uh, has has always obfuscated and it's always been it's been defensive and it's shut down committees, not only with this, but with we and other programs. So it speaks to a general narrative, I think, Libby, that that they're trying to portray this government. And, and the reason why they're doing it is because, of course, in a minority situation, an election is looming. Uh, and this is yet another example, because they've also been hammering this government with respect to the mixed messaging on the vaccines and all that kind of stuff. But this is an issue because, you know, when you have the liberal government trying to, not trying to, but actively uh, delaying and filibustering committees so that you can't, you can't, you know, you can't call witnesses. You've got somebody from the PMO who basically said, yeah, the chief of staff did know this and was aware that it was a serious personal allegation that was happening. And the prime minister saying, well, nobody knew. That kind of finger pointing, which is exactly what happened with we, which caused the, the, the government some level of consternation, is happening again now. And to have this kind of stuff, you know, happen, I think it's right for the opposition to, to, to sort of want to portray it or at least want to to bring it up and in, in, in as an issue, because I think it speaks to a general pattern that this government is having, which I think is going to be negative to, to what Canadians see about this government, because there is a, a bit of a hiding and, and cancelling and filibustering and, uh, and, and not having you know, the transparency and accountability that, that the Prime Minister is so proudly saying that this government is all about. Uh, Charles, are they going to wear any of this, or is it just uh, something that's, you know, people aren't focusing uh, I, on? I think the public is going to you know, consider the circumstances. We have 
an issue that's been pervasive. There's a lot of harassment, intimidation, and the culture within the military. Um, it, it has to be changed. I mean, corporate Canada uh, has, and, and and the political side have taken a, a greater steps to to uh, uh, deal with these matters. Um, but does it, does you know is the chief of staff, is the prime minister, is the minister of defense acting? In good faith, are they really concerned about changing the culture? I mean, and trying to support those victims and providing uh, accountability where they can get, you know, fair trials and so forth. I think they are. Uh, it's a very unfortunate situation, obviously, and these are things that have been hacking. They've been ongoing for too long, and uh, there's a lack of trust. We have to we have to do a way and find a, a better, safer way uh, for those victims to come forward and to change the culture within the military. Uh, you know, the guys that are at the head are people that have been around for generations. I mean, um, this thing, this, and I, I think people are more sensitive to it just as they are in corporate Canada. Uh, Karen, uh, before we wrap up, something you would be more familiar with uh, as a former municipal politician. So Ottawa is stepping in with an environmental assessment of this Highway 413. Is that a good thing? No. I don't think it's a good thing I, I, because, again, it is just, um, I mean, we see this encroachment. So the federal government is now getting involved with the provincial highway. The provincial government is getting involved with municipal land planning. And, you know, at a time when um, government is, you know, tasked with the overriding job of getting the pandemic under control, I think it's really important that government stick in their lane. And to, it, so it would appear as a, from naively, it would appear to me as if this is gearing up for an election, that they're going to try to make this highway an election issue. And it, it, that's the kind of thing that I just don't think is, is wise to be doing right now. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Fightback's Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fightback. I'm Jane Brown. More now on the federal takeover of environmental oversight of the proposed GTA West Highway. The 60-kilometer 413 would connect Milton from the 401 to Vaughan, ending at the 400. The highway would eliminate 2,000 acres of farmland, cut across 85 waterways, and pave nearly 400 acres of protected greenbelt land in the process. Former Toronto Mayor David Crombie has been actively opposing the highway. He is also a former member of Ontario's Greenbelt Council. On Tuesday, David Crombie joined Libby with his reaction to the federal decision. Well, clearly a, a positive step forward. Uh, for those of us who've been engaged, that's many people now and many municipalities uh, opposed to the uh, proposition of building the highway. Um, the idea of the, pro- the federal government now taking a role in the environmental assessment, uh, that it's not simply a delay, but it's actually another actor. And what I think it should be doing is uh, having the province, have it dawn on the province that it's time to pull back from building, uh, building the highway. Uh, what do you say to their contention that this is necessary, that all of those people who will soon be populating that part of the GTA need it? And, and we already know that a lot of our highways are overcrowded. Well, there was a, a study done in, uh, in 2018 
uh, I might say that the idea of building was about 10 or 12 years old now. It started about 2009. But in 2018, there was an independent study done. And that study looked at all the requirements we thought for the future that would, would be needed. And what they concluded was that the, the highway was not necessary. That in fact, it only saved time, uh, about uh, 30 to 60 seconds a trip. Uh, and so therefore, the cost of it all, not only in terms of money, but of the cost of it in terms of environmental and agricultural destruction, was just not worth it. And so they recommended against it in 2018. The government of that day um, followed that advice. The current government has not. And what do you think is behind it? I mean, uh, there have been suggestions that uh, it's it's something that will make some developers very wealthy, and uh, these are supporters of the PC government. Uh, do you think that that is what's behind it? Well, it could be. I mean, I uh, the world which I deal with in Libby and all of these years I've been involved in public issues of the day, I try to stay away from what might be bad motivations and look at whether or not it's bad policy. This is very bad policy. It's going to make money. I have no doubt that there's been a land assembly because the notion was started some 10 or 12 years ago, and there's been uh, land assembly along the, the proposed route, and there will be people who will um, get involved, of course, in the development of that land. Bear in mind that we're not talking about the building of a road, the real co- only. The, the real important thing is to understand that this will bring a lot of land development in that area and therefore further affect the environmental considerations that we have. And so um, let, me, let, me, let me put it clearly. Uh, I don't blame people in the land development industry for trying to turn a profit on, on, on the business they're in. It is the job of the government of the day to make sure it stands up for the public uh, in these things. And, and, and the government is not. Why do you think they fast-tracked this? I mean, it looks to me a lot. 2,000 acres of farmland, 85 waterways, 400 acres of protected greenbelt. Yeah, why do they fast-track it? I think because they, there was a pressure to do so from those who are interested in, in developing the land. I have little doubt about that. But that's why I underline um, it's, the land, it's not the land development industry we need to worry about here. It is really about the government and its role. Its role is to defend the public in the, in, in, in the instance of having a, a private concerns have power. And so the province is, is the one at bat. They need to stand up for the public and not simply let it go by. David Crombie, what would you like to leave us with? Uh, this should be a wake-up call for the province of Ontario. They've got enough on their plate on how to go about taking us out of the, the, the post-pandemic world without having to build a a highway that has no value. Environmental activist and former Toronto mayor, David Crombie. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. 
Helen in Toronto phone to weigh in on the recent long-term care report and the future possibility that non-vaccinated personal support workers could end up having contact with nursing home residents. I'm terrified that by putting people into the homes that have not been tested and might be carrying COVID, that what went on in my mother's home, and thank God she's still alive, uh, is going to happen again. That they are putting these people at risk by putting people in. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Pat in Toronto, who also called to talk about the final long-term care COVID-19 commission report and Minister Marilee Fullerton's reaction to it. I think people are missing. There's a difference between governance and management. And obviously, she came into government. She can't change the management. I mean, there's a structure. And, you know, I, I realize it frustrates people, but they have to understand that. And you don't necessarily get the best people working in government. And I think that's what's been shown here. And, you know, I feel very sorry for the lady. Probably what she should have done, is, if she felt strongly about it, is resigned and left to say, look, at this thing's out of control. But otherwise, she's dealing with weak people below her. She's dealing with no money. You know, I mean, money is short. And, you know, I mean, we talk about fixing this. We can fix it, but it's going to cost a lot of money. And who's going to pay? That's that's the big issue. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fightback. The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer... Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.